Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of the Frictionless Supply Chain Podcast. I am the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. And I'm a contributing writer to Supply Chain Management Review. Today, I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Sarah Carpenter, the Director of Corporate Responsibility at Ascent. We're going to be talking about human rights issues and global supply chains and how supply chain professionals must deal with these issues. If you've been listening to my Frictionless podcasts, you know that this is a topic I've been interested in for many years in my supply chain work. I truly believe that we must raise awareness of this timely con this timely topic for supply chain professionals. Most recently, we had a podcast and we discussed the issue of the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act in the U.S. that went into effect in June and stops all imports into the U.S. that may include forced labor from China. But there's much more to discuss beyond just the Uyghurs, so let's get started. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Rosemary. Yeah. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be working with human rights initiatives. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I kind of, I would say it's sort of within my character, I guess, to kind of orient my career around people. Um, but what led me to working at the intersection of like business and human rights was a pivotal trip that I took when I was a teenager. Um, I visited the sugarcane plantations of the Dominican Republic. And I saw working poverty for the very first time. So I saw Haitian workers uh, working incredibly difficult jobs, very long hours, yet they were still living in abject poverty, um, which for me at that time was a revelation, right? I, of course, understood that there was poverty globally. Um, I didn't really understand, though, that one could have sort of a full-time job and still live in poverty. Um, and so it struck me as being deeply unfair sort of strong sense of sort of injustice around that. Um, but I also felt um, it had some kind of connection or relevancy to me as a consumer, right? Consumer of the products that these workers were making. And so that is kind of, again, when I look back, sort of really what sort of, you know, moved me in the direction of human rights initiatives. Um, after that, it certainly wasn't a straight path for me to reach where I am today. Um, but it is certainly, I think, the spark that eventually led me to pursue a career um, that works at the intersection of business and human rights. Yeah, and that's still an issue today. There's a lot of working poor around the world and also in the U.S. Now, I know you're in, you're in Athens, Greece today. Um, where you live, that's my understanding. But um, this issue of the working poor um, isn't uh, just related to one country. It is really worldwide. Yes. No, you're 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 absolutely right. And a lot of the, you know, labor rights issues that you know supply chain professionals are having to navigate today in the context of their own compliance programs, they cover a whole host of topics. And of course, wages is is one of them. But if you look at kind of the extreme end of the exploitation um, spectrum, we have forced labor, right? And forced labor, um, usually, you know, uh, there's, you know, very low wages, there's sort of extreme hours. 
And it's an issue that occurs all around the world. So there was a very recent report actually by the UN's International Labor Organization that shows that more than 50% of the workers who are working in forced labor live in high income or upper middle high income countries, right? So to your point of this happens everywhere, that's absolutely true. You know, many of us, we might have this um, bias in thinking that it just happens in low income countries, but that's certainly not the case. It can happen in the US, it can happen in Greece, and it happens elsewhere. Well, when we're talking about forced labor, um, can you define that for us? Is it just prison labor or what's included when we talk about that or have that term forced labor? Yeah, it, well, it's broader. It's broader than that. So really it encompasses any work that's involuntary and it, it takes place under the menace of penalty. Um, so if we think of it in the context of the private sector, there's kind of two ways in which forced labor can enter global supply chains. One is if it occurs in a state-sponsored capacity, so that's what the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act is seeking to address, is state-sponsored forced labor in China. But then there's also private sector-imposed kind of forced labor, um, and that you know can it 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 looks differently from one industry to the next, but it often um, uh, uh, the sort of um, indentured workers are often migrant workers who have paid enormous recruitment fees to get a job overseas. They arrive, they have their passports removed, their identity documents removed, and they're in a situation of indebtedness where they're constantly working, but they're not able to actually sort of, you know, move the needle down on, on the debt that they're owing by virtue of them sort of having gained this job. Um, so that's that's kind of what forced labor often looks like in the context of global supply chains are migrant workers who are um, really being severely exploited as a result of some of the bargains that they had to make to get the job in the first place. Are there certain hot spots around the world for that sort of thing? I, I think um, I've heard before that the Middle East has a lot of migrant workers like that that are in, in forced labor or sort of trapped and can't get out. Yes. Anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, really across Asia, you know, for instance, Malaysia, uh, you know, those of us, you might have seen actually in the news, um, you know, rubber gloves um, uh, in forced labor, the world's largest manufacturers of the gloves that we we're all using to keep ourselves safe over the course of the pandemic were made, being made under conditions of forced labor. And many of those businesses actually have now lost access to the U.S. market because of um, a, a U.S. import ban on products made with forced labor. And they are spending millions of dollars to remediate those forced labor violations in order to regain access to the U.S. market. Yeah, and just, just to be clear, the U.S. has always, since the 1920s, had a forced labor, anti-forced labor import act on the books. It's just that um, recently that was uh, specifically to uh, enacted to address the Uyghurs for, coming from Europe. I'm sorry, yes. coming from China, uh, who are um, in forced labor camps. They're they're mostly Muslims and are not accepted by um, the Chinese government. And so they're sent to camps to be re-educated, so to speak. Okay. So I know you work with the SENT software also. So, so talking about just forced labor is one thing, but a SENT addresses all kinds of compliance and regulatory uh, things. Can you describe a little bit more about what the software actually does? 
Yeah, of course. So just to, yeah, first, you know, take a step back, Ascent, you know, just broad brushstrokes here. We're, we're on a mission to make the supply chains of complex manufacturers deeply and durably good, right? So our customers, they use our supply chain sustainability management solution, which combines software with managed services, as well as subject matter expertise to bring responsible products to the market, right? So they use our solution not only to address kind of human trafficking and slavery risks in their supply chains, but to also kind of capture and analyze data around sort of carcinogenic or mutagenic substances within products, conflict minerals, um, uh, climate-related data, you name it. It sort of covers a, a whole host of, of, of topics. Um, so we're, you know, not a small outfit, right? You know, this is a, a space where more and more companies are undertaking a digital transformation. So they're looking to use technology like Ascent in order to move away from what has historically been kind of a, a, a reactive a manual process to collecting and managing supply chain data to one that's much more sort of proactive and automated. And so they're, you know, turning to vendors like Ascent to help solve, solve that problem. And so what we're doing for them is we are, you know, uh, uncovering what's hidden, you know, validating what's good and eliminating unwanted supply, uh, un unwanted surprises um, in their supply chain. I'm a supply chain professional working in a, a industry I could potentially use the Ascent software to understand if I have logistics providers or suppliers or uh, you know other um, supply chain uh, providers that may be either using forced labor or um, they have using bad chemicals that sort of thing. So how do you find these people and um, and these companies and include them in your software? What's the process there? Yeah. Well, it's 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 multifaceted, right? So we we you know benefit from the huge amount of data that sort of exists in the public domain, as well as the data that we collect from our customer suppliers directly to paint a, a good picture of of risk, you know, to give our customers insights into what's happening within those suppliers' facilities. So, in the context of forced labor, for instance, really what we would hone in on are um, a, what risk factors exist within that supplier's um, operations and supply chain? So are they using migrant workers? Are they using recruitment firms? Are they operating in industries that are known to have sort of, you know, are at risk, pronounced risk for forced labor countries, et cetera. But then we want to understand, okay, in view of those risk factors, how well is the supplier then controlling for risk through their own management systems? You know, are they doing due diligence? Do they have policies against charging workers recruitment fees? Do they have policies against withholding passports and, you know, identity documents? Are their employees being trained? Are they reporting on their progress? And we then combine that with the data that we collect from the public domain about that supplier. What is the media saying about that supplier? Is that supplier uh, present on any denied parties list? And we bring that sort of data together to offer sort of a risk assessment for our customers so they then can then prioritize which suppliers to focus in on for you know, more in-depth due diligence activities. That's terrific. I, you know, over the past 25 years or so, uh, global procurement and and working with uh, global logistics providers has become so much more complex 
I, I had a long career in supply chain management. And I can remember when we were, when I first worked in purchasing right out of college, we looked up three potential suppliers in a big green book, Thomas Register. And then we called them and got quotes for price and delivery. And then we placed an order and that was about it. In today's environment, you know, understanding if you have, first of all, globalization really made a big impact. So now you're not just looking up suppliers in Indiana or Iowa or, you know, California. Now you're uh, thinking about global suppliers and who has what available, what are they making? But also, you know, the added aspect of making sure that the um, suppliers are uh, legitimate. They don't have worker, they don't have forced labor workers, they don't have bad products that they're polluting the environment with and so forth. That's really uh, important, a new aspect of a uh, global supply chain a professional's job. Um, but I imagine, I mean, thinking about the whole world, it's, you know, how do you possibly capture all these potential suppliers and the various aspects of what they're doing? How is that possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I would say technology makes it possible, right? Uh, especially for businesses um, who have large, complex supply chains. Um, what they're now being challenged with would, I think, be impossible for them to meet without the benefit of technology to help them sort of automate some of these arduous activities, routine activities to really uncover what's happening in their supply chains. I would also say that even from a technology perspective, certainly what we're doing at Ascent is we're offering our customers a platform that allows them not just to have a one-dimensional view of their suppliers on human trafficking and slavery issues, but to also see that supplier from different perspectives. What about conflict minerals? What about reach compliance? What about Rojas, Prop 65? What about carbon emissions, right? So that these different sort of um, uh, impacts that all matter in the context of, of a supply chain can be looked at comprehensively so that businesses can make really informed strategic decisions on who they decide to work with and how they um, help sort of um, uh, equip their suppliers to sort of improve their practices over time. Do you look at, um, do you include uh, deny party screening in your compliance yes. software? Okay. okay. We do. So yeah. theoretically, if a buyer is placing an order, uh, with a supplier somewhere, they uh, would uh, maybe put the name of that supplier into your software, or there's some integration with an ERP system, uh, and that checks uh, the supplier against your databases or whatever you've collected to make sure that this is in fact a legitimate supplier and one that you want to do business with. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the type of screen that, I mean, it's important to do it certainly before a business enters into a contractual relationship with a supplier, but it also then needs to be done continuously from that point onwards, right? These lists are growing enormously. I mean, again, in the context of the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act, we now have a new list, the UFLIPA list, entity list, right, that the U.S. Um, uh, government is maintaining and sort of, you know, uh, intends to update, vigorously update, per my understanding of what they've shared. 
And that's just one example. There's sort of a proliferation of these lists that businesses can actually, you know, benefit from, utilize to help them sort of undertake that due diligence on their supply chain. So it's important not just to have that be just a one-off activity at the outset of a relationship, but one that's continuously done throughout the course of the of the partnership. And it's not just U.S., right? I mean, it's worldwide. The European Union, for example, has also their own lists and denied party screening. There are lists all over the world, Japan and um, everywhere, right? Yes. So absolutely. all of that is included in your software yes. check. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The software, it's built for businesses with global supply chains, you know, global complex manufacturers. Um, so we, you know, it's imperative that we take sort of a global perspective in how we, you know, build our databases and our, our respective lists. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can see the complexity. Um, yes. How, do you, how does a, a buyer or a supply chain professional is looking for a logistics provider, how in the heck do they know worldwide if these are legitimate suppliers? And they may have even... Uh, visited the site or visited the supplier, but you don't know if they have violations unless you check it somewhere else and the yeah. software is the solution to that. So um, I, I want to step back a minute and talk a little bit about some examples. Um, we know the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh in 2013. I think it, it, it killed about 1,300 people, workers, um, and it was a wake-up call to a lot of companies. And for those in the audience that don't know, this was a garment factory in Bangladesh. And that um, th was built on several stories above the street level um, that were, were faulty. The construction was faulty. And essentially, uh, cracks in the cement were recognized one morning and everybody was told to go home, including all the garment workers who were, you know, making pennies uh, per hour. Uh, and then they, they were told, come back to work. They inspected the building, thought it was safe, and were told to come back to work the next day. And the next morning, the whole building collapsed and many people died uh, in that. And it was tied to forced labor in a way also, because it's my understanding that the um, the workers were told if they did not come back to work, because many of them were afraid to go back into the building, and they were told if they did not come back to work, they would lose their jobs. So, the, you know, here they are, you know, making minimum wage or barely surviving, working in a sweatshop sewing environment for these big global name brands like Benetton and, and uh, uh, some, several other big brands there. Um, and if they lost their job, there weren't other jobs available. So, you know, theoretically, it was go to work in an unsafe environment or let your family starve. Those were kind of the two options. Uh, and because they felt compelled to go into the building, um, they really were at risk and ultimately many people lost their lives. So that was a, a very um, important, I think, pivotal point in um, looking at uh, global sourcing and manufacturing and the responsibility of a company, a supply chain professional, to have true oversight. So not just going to visit the factory once a year, but understanding what the building codes are, who are the workers, how are they being treated? I mean, a whole host of things that should be audited. Can you 
tell us about that pivot point from your perspective and you know what happened after that and are there other examples like that that you know we we should consider yeah yeah i mean rana plaza it, it in many ways it's actually what what launched my career so i i lived in dhaka bangladesh for a couple of years um, I supported the reform effort that was launched following the collapse of Rana Plaza by the UN's International Labour Organization. Um, and, uh, you know, it offered me just a on the ground sort of perspective on, on what it means to, you know, what, what the garment sector looked like in the context of Bangladesh. Um, I visited the site of, of, of Rana Plaza and it was a haunting experience because, you know, a year later, I could still see the labels of brands that I recognized, you know, as a North American consumer at that time, sort of, you know, being within sort of the rubble of, of Rana Plaza. So it really was a a huge, huge moment for, for the apparel sector. Um, you know, if we kind of, you know, take, take a step back and just, there was a lot of lessons, I'll say that, um, of, of sort of, of course, what, what this is offered sort of supply chain professionals, you know, of course, one, one obvious lesson is, you know, at that time, the audit protocol did not consider structural building safety in the context of those audits. Right. And in a, a country like, um, Bangladesh, which is so densely populated, you know, multi-tiered factories were a common thing. And so that was an important sort of risk factor that, that was missed. But as you've rightly pointed out, Rosemary, it's much bigger than that. Um, because, yes, the building was going to go down, but it didn't have to go down with 1,100 workers inside, right? And if you look, in fact, at the bank that occupied the ground floor of the Rana Plaza building, those workers were evacuated. That day, they were not there. Um, uh, and the garment workers, you know, had a completely different fate. And so for me, it's not just, again, the lessons, it's not just around, you um, uh, sort of empowering workers to sort of have agency to negotiate key aspects of their employment relationship, especially around occupational safety and health. But I think it's a step further than that of why not only were why workers not able to sufficiently advocate for them to sort of remove themselves from a building that was clearly unsafe, but also why management felt that they weren't able to even fulfill those those you know deep concerns from those uh, workers. And certainly one thing that, you know, I think industries writ large have sort of learned from the apparel sector is just how for supply chain management professionals, how they themselves can sometimes introduce risk in the supply chain. So if they're putting enormous pressures on suppliers for um, turnaround times, um, if there isn't sufficient lead times, even pressure around prices, right? That can all have sort of, you know, uh, knockdown impacts um, on, on workers and on sort of the ability of businesses to even sort of uphold the labor rights of their workers. So it's really sort of, yeah, a bigger multifaceted picture where every actor needs to consider their own um, uh, contribution, um, their own set of responsibilities and work together towards a, a better outcome. Well, that's a really great piece of advice and a great perspective that it isn't just the owner of the building that was responsible at Ronan Plaza, but all the people that were um, placing orders there, overseeing the apparel production there, um, you know, all the companies that were involved have to take responsibility and should be taking responsibility at this point. Are there other examples like that that you can you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a number of kind of well well documented kind of examples in, in Bangladesh, certainly some around sort of, you know, fires where workers were not able to leave the factories because sort of the exit gates were blocked. But again, if we sort of move maybe more towards sort of some other sectors, I do think 
um, that that example that I had sort of shared earlier around sort of the uh, uh, workers who were producing rubber gloves for these global um, supply chains during the pandemic, I think that's an interesting one. And the reason why is, you know, what we have kind of learned about forced labor is, you know, often it's a product of what was once considered sort of accept acceptable sort of standard kind of commercial relationships, again, where uh, a migrant worker, often coming from a very poor country, would arrive in another country. They would be subject to different terms than the local workers, you know, terms that certainly weren't as advantageous to them, and they would arrive heavily indebted. And in fact, the recruitment, you know, firms that would sort of create this indebtedness, there's this long chain, right, where they're each sort of adding sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, debt sort of a, along the way. And um, uh, and how that, again, would then sort of lead to sort of situations of uh, instances of, of forced labor. So that sort of general scenario, I would say, is quite common in the context of global supply chains, especially, let's say, in the electronics um, supply chain. We've seen it in sort of the medical supply chain, as well as others, where it's really around these migrant workers who are um, heavily indebted and uh, end up in instances of, of forced labor um, as a result. Well, there's certainly a lot to consider. Um, how Beyond the software, how do we sort of, at the beginning, avoid these sorts of issues in our global supply chain? I mean, what should supply chain professionals be looking for and what kind of red flags are out there even before they use your software? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um... The earlier they get started on um, addressing these issues, the better, right? Businesses, they they never have as much leverage as they do, you know, before they actually sign a contract, right? That's often where they yeah. they have, a, a, you know, the most amount of ability to sort of, you know, negotiate for improvements, for, in, for changes. So I would say, you know, again, from a due diligence process to ensure that, you know, before you even enter into that commercial agreement, ensure that you are undertaking sort of sufficient due diligence on those suppliers, inform yourself of what those risks are, you know, even just based on where their supplier is located, which industry they're in, understand what that context is so that you are in a position to be able to identify red flags. Um, because for instance, uh, you know, forced labor, it's often a hidden sort of abuse. You really need to know right. what to look for to identify it. Um, so educate yourself if that's sort of the intention, or of course, work with a, a provider who, who can offer that service for you. Okay. So um, along the same lines, a number of companies are trying to get what's called a B Corp certification. Can you describe what that is and why it's important? Yes. Yeah, well, Ascent, we are a certified B Corporation, actually. So this is a, a very um, a recent achievement for us. And really what it means in a nutshell is we we take sustainability just as seriously as, as our customers. Um, it was a, a significant lift, right? So if we think about, for instance, greenwashing, you know, there's a lot of uh, businesses are facing a lot of scrutiny, right, for their environmental, social kind of governance claims, right? And, and not all businesses are, are sort of coming out at the um, uh, right side, you know, once, once they're subject to that scrutiny. So the B Corp certification is kind of an antidote to that, that uh, uh, greenwashing um, risk, right? Because what it is, is it's uh, businesses who are B Corp certified, they have been um, uh, verified by an independent third 
uh, party around their sustainability um, impacts and, and progress. And even beyond that, they, in many cases, um, have had to amend their articles of incorporation to ensure that their board is uh, able to consider sort of the perspectives of a broad set of stakeholders when making decisions and not just the shareholders. So it really, you know, gets down to kind of the DNA of, of a company. Um, but of course, you know, for the supply chain professionals on the line, they have uh, a great opportunity to help contribute to their um, employers and, you know, becoming B, B certified organizations through their supply chain work, because a, a certification, of course, considers not only a business's impact within its own four walls, but also its business, its impact within um, the context of its supply chain. So the work that supply chain, you know, professionals are doing can actually contribute to points which could then lead to a B Corp certification. Yeah, really, that's really an important concept that it isn't just um, how you're, you might be polluting as a factory, but also your entire supply chain. So, yes. oh, you know, as I said before, the, the whole supply chain world has gotten so much more complex over the past, say, 20 years or so, really important. So B Corporation certification is more focused on, um, on the environment, environmental issues, I guess, than forced labor? It's it's all the above. So it looks at environmental issues, social issues. It looks at customer impact, um, uh, community impacts. Um, so it does have a, a very, very broad lens. Okay. So if uh, supply chain people start hearing things about B Corp certification from maybe their compliance group or, or somewhere, they should take note and try yes. to support it as much as possible. That's exactly. Yeah. Wow, Sarah, it's been fascinating for sure. Um, do you have any other closing thoughts or anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, I guess my, yeah, my uh, closing, my, my key messages here are, you know, there's an urgent need for businesses to sort of, you know, take a seat at the table, work alongside governments and, and civil society to address forced labor and global supply chains, not only because, you know, it's it's the right thing to do, but there's also, you know, a real legal compliance aspect to it, real business risks that are now connected to forced labor and supply chains. Um, keep technology in mind, you know, there's this sort of, you know, transformation that's at play and it's to businesses advantage to really use technology to their advantage when they're addressing these risks. And of course, just supply chain professionals. Yeah, as, you, as you've as you mentioned, Rosemary, have a huge opportunity here, right? To make a significant impact. So um, certainly to, to seize the moment. Yeah, we, we're all hoping we make this a better world. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. It was so interesting to talk to you. Can you please give us your contact information if listeners want to learn more or to get in touch with you? Yeah, certainly. So it's sarah.carpenter at ascent.com. And that's A-S-S-E-N-T. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. And you can listen to more frictionless supply chain podcasts posted on Supply Chain Management Reviews landing page on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a great day. Thank you.